Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit, the second half of the second decade of the 19th century. The 18-teens were a tough time. The Napoleonic Wars, the greatest war in British history, had just come to an end. Soldiers and sailors had been demobbed in a kind of helter-skelter chaotic way. The economy was unbalanced. There was a recession. The flow of public money was tightened up by fiscally hawkish politicians. And also the Industrial Revolution was going on. So working practices were undergoing gigantic changes, probably some of the, the greatest changes in history. And as a result, those years saw upheavals, revolutionary murmurs, within Britain and elsewhere. People, of course, listening to this podcast will know all about the Peterloo massacre when 60,000 non-violent demonstrators in St Peter's Field in Manchester were attacked by the militia, by British soldiers, many killed and wounded. But perhaps less famously, but fascinatingly, there was also a conspiracy that was hatched in London. It's probably the most important revolutionary conspiracy in British history in the last 500 years after Guy Fawkes. It's known as the Cato Street Conspiracy. A group of men got together and planned to kill the most senior members of the government. It is a remarkable tale. You're going to love it. And I've got the man to tell us all about it. He is called Vic Gatrell. He's a historian. He spends his time in the archives. He spends time writing books. His latest book is about the Cato Street Conspiracy. He joins me on this podcast to talk all about it. In the meantime, I mentioned the Battle of Waterloo earlier. One of our most successful films ever on History Hit TV is the Battle of Waterloo film, but it's being overtaken by Elna Yanniger, the unstoppable Elna Yanniger, the medieval historian who's on History Hit TV with her new series on sex in the medieval period, on drinking, on pastimes of hobbies, and they're doing very, very well indeed. They're smashing all the records on History Hit TV. You can head over there if you just follow the link in the information of this podcast. You can go right there. It takes you there. It's magic. It's the internet. It's a wonderful thing. You just click on it with your thumb. You get taken straight there, and you get 14 days free if you sign up today. And you go and binge watch all Elmer Yanniger's shows. So do go and check that out. But in the meantime, folks, here is the Cato Street Conspiracy. Enjoy. Vic, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Tell me about the difficult 18-teens. What's the backdrop? What's going on in Britain in the build-up to 1820? Well, the point of my uh, study is to undermine a kind of cosy view of the Regency and to connect with the usually unmentioned and undiscussed underdogs 
and their view of the Regency, which was much darker than Jane Austen's or Lucy Worsley's. And it's odd that if you go to Amazon and look up Regency romance, you'll get 50,000 titles. But if you look up Regency poor or Regency working class, you'll get none. And actually, I'm kind of correcting that by reminding us that it was a bleak time for poor people, especially for poor craftsmen like shoemakers, who had suddenly hit the dirt, if you like, because their apprenticeship controls were collapsing after the war, and because of the high food prices and low employment in London and elsewhere. And so it's, oddly enough, nearly a shoemaker's revolution, because about 60-70% of them are underemployed or unemployed shoemakers. And they're fairly literate. They can write adequately, although misspelling. They're highly opinionated, as shoemakers always have been in history, politically. And they're kind of uh, (laughs) on the side of the angels in modern terms, in that they want the vote. They don't really want to take the king's head off, although there are a few men of violence who do. But there's a very powerful radical movement in London and in the North too, triggered, needless to say, by the French Revolution and the model of events in France. So we got 1815, Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon at Wars finally come to an end. Gigantic economic depression afterwards, the industries all needs to recalibrate to peacetime use, hundreds of thousands of sailors and soldiers suddenly demobbed, terrible harvest because of the Indonesian volcano, the year without the summer. So the teens were a bad time. Absolutely. It's a very bad time. Let me just begin by saying that how I got into this, and it was almost accidental, as a lot of my work has been, accidental discovery in the archives. One day, many years ago, I was working on another subject entirely, and as one does, one gets bored and you go scratching about the National Archives and the boxes and the reports. And I ordered a book from the so-called Treasury Solicitor's Papers, which had in it something knocking and hard and heavy, and I tipped out three handmade spikes which were about a foot long, files basically, which could be inserted in the end of broomsticks and so on to manufacture pikes, as they called them, on which, as it turned out, they were intending to impale the heads of Lord Castlereagh and Lord Sidmouth, parade through London and bring about a revolution. Now, the kind of concreteness of this evidence was shocking and gobsmacking to me because historians usually look at abstract ideas and documents. And here was something real that was made by them that comes from 200 and odd years ago, which was meant to kill the cabinet. And so I tumbled on this extraordinary story of the Cato Street conspiracy, which expresses, of course, the poverty of the time and the ambitions of the time and probably the madness of some of the participants and certainly the innocence and ignorance of some of the participants who joined it. They had no idea what they were up against, which was, of course, a military power that had just beaten Napoleon and which was forceful in the form of soldiers and barracks throughout the whole kingdom. Nonetheless, they had this fantasy that a few of them could overturn the government 
and possibly take off the king's head. Needless to say, the story in a nutshell turns on the fact that they were infiltrated by spies, that everything they did and said was reported to the Home Office and the Bow Street Police Office, and they were caught after a spectacular hunt in Cato Street, a tiny little Muse Alley off Edgware Road, more or less the edge of London then. They were caught and imprisoned, tried and punished in ways we'll talk about. You point out the government's from military superpower. It's nervous, though, as well, the government, isn't it? Because the Tories under Lord Liverpool enact some pretty punitive legislation. They're worried about revolution from below. They are, absolutely, with justification, given what happened in France. What kind of legislation have they passed in the teens to suppress popular revolt? What they're up against is essentially soldiers and bullets, and uh, if it comes to the worst, uh, Peterloo, the massacre in Manchester's St Peter's Field, shows what was possible if violence was unleashed on the part of the state. But apart from that, there is a barrage of acts against sedition, against free opinion, free publication of newspapers, sedition as it's called, and treason, around which most opinion makers at the time of a liberal kind had to tread with great care. It wasn't a police state, as some historians have said, because there were compensatory liberties, which the British might be proud of themselves on, like the trial by jury, for example. And the jury was a bastion of defence against inappropriate legal power or vicious legal power. And time after time, the juries acquit the people that government want to imprison. So it's not entirely vicious, but it still remains true that the government at the time, all of it, Tory, consistently Tory, from Pitt on to Lord Liverpool, was defensive, anxious, nervous, terrified, even on the part of heroes like Wellington. After the war was over in 1815, a continual sense that the world was very fragile, their comforts were very fragile. And so there was a kind of paranoia in some parts. Carthory, for example, who had been the Irish secretary and was probably the most hated man in England, went to dinner with pistols in his pocket, just in case he had to defend himself. There's this paranoia that spreads all the way through to 1819, especially after Peterloo, the Manchester episode, which generates a plethora of acts that stay in force until well after Cato Street. And the most vicious of them is the act that entitles the king to take off the head of a traitor. The violence of the state is perhaps best symbolised in the executions of the Cato Street conspirators, as we'll see. We'll come to them. Talk to me about who they were. Who are these men who gathered round and plotted revolution? So, as I say, a good percentage of them, 40-50% of the 25 men who gathered in the event, were poor shoemakers, underemployed shoemakers, skilled men, literate men, well-informed about the French Revolution, but crazy in their fantasy that their plot was going to succeed. And the plot was simply to, to gather one dark night in February 1820 in this tiny little stable 
in Cato Street, a battered, more or less derelict stable even then, even though it had been built only 20 years before then. They were to assemble upstairs in the stable with their pikes and their blunderbusses and their rusty cutlasses and have some bread and cheese. And at eight o'clock, they were going to walk through the dark streets down Cato Street, across Portman Square to Grosvenor Square, where the whole cabinet would be sitting for its regular dinner, they thought, in Lord Harrowby's house, which was in the finest square in London, which was next to the Archbishop of Canterbury's. I'm laughing because it was such an extraordinary fantasy that 25 men could walk, even through the dark, down to uh, Lord Harrowby's, bang on the door, throw hand grenades, storm in past the servants, cut off heads, and stage a revolution. They're desperate men. They're also led, and probably misled, by their leader, who is himself a peculiar man. He's a quasi-gentleman, nearly a gentleman, from Lincolnshire, a country farmer, a tenant farmer from a fairly wealthy tenant farming family, whose uncle, by the way, was a famous slave owner, Thomas Thistlewood, in Jamaica. And there was probably slave money in the family. But Arthur Thistlewood, this young man, was a bit of a tearaway. He was a desperate figure in many ways. He didn't have many talents. I suspect he had certain kinds of mental illness we'd probably discern today, but wasn't seen then, although many people thought he was mad. I suspect he was bipolar, as we might say today. His moods went up and down. He was a gambler. He was a a womanizer. He was after the money. He was drilled out of the militia that he joined in the 1790s as a young man, for reasons we don't know and probably gambling debt. And he gets to London in 1811 with his wife, a feisty lady called Susan, Susan Thistlewood, and his illegitimate child, boy called Julian, who was then aged about 11, who Susan has taken on and conscientiously mothered, even though she wasn't his real mother. Anyway, this family settles oddly enough, in Edgware Road, long before the conspiracy was thought of, and slowly infiltrates itself, Arthur particularly, into the favours of the leading and often aristocratic radicals, radical Whigs of the time, and uh, certainly early on identifies himself as a liberal and as an advocate of reform. He, however, gets more and more extreme as the years go on. And there's a long story of how he gathered a lot of madcaps around him increasingly, joined a thing called the Spensian Philanthropists, which is a community of Spensian socialists committed to the redistribution of land, but without explaining how they would redistribute the land, and slowly finds his only audience is an audience of desperate poor men, the aristocrats, the veterans of the 1790s, the veteran radicals, tend to discard him and wash their hands of him. 
You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking about the Cato Street Conspiracy. More coming up. Ever wanted to know more about some of the greatest stories in history? Kings, queens, knights, monks, peasants, battles, castles, love, hate, treachery and revenge? They're all waiting in the greatest millennium in human history. Well, yet anyway. I'm Matt Lewis and my co-host Dr Kat Jarman and I are waiting to tell you some of the most exciting, exhilarating, fascinating and less well-known stories of the Middle Ages. What are you waiting for? We've gone medieval with History Hit. Are you coming? I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So the plan is they just go to this house, they storm it, throw hand grenades, and then start chopping people up. Yeah. Well, one has to be careful here, but there is a kind of pattern in the lone wolf terrorists of today, people who may have no real idea of what they're up against, but nonetheless commit themselves to this act of mad violence without the slightest chance of success far more terrorist attacks are defeated by spies and by police infiltration than might ever succeed in the here and now. Well, so too, it's the same kind of mechanism, the same kind of impulse, I think, of desperation, of anger, of 
wishful thinking, efforts to change the world at one fell blow. It's a familiar pattern. And in many ways, this, apart from Guy Fawkes, efforts in 1605, in many ways, this is the first big terrorist plot to destroy government since Guy Fawkes, apart from the Civil War. And in its failure, which we'll come to, really determines the relative peace and freedom from revolution that Britain enjoys for the next century. It's defeated. It's the last fling, really, until the IRA gets to work in the 20th century. So it's led by a semi-gentleman, packed with sometimes hungry, literally hungry, desperate, unemployed men, not many of them, because the majority of the London population is very wary of prosecution because of the power of legislation, which is against them. And the knowledge that there are spies around everywhere, a knowledge that Thistlewood and Chums kind of <laughs> swept under the table. And there are very few of them, therefore, and into the stable assemble no more than 25 men. And they had thought that they might get 40. But Thistlewood had this notion that the great revolutions of the past really were Roman revolutions. And the overthrowing of a Roman tyrant was usually the act of one or two men, Brutus and others. And he read Gibbon. He knew his Gibbon decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And he had a sense of that remote history more acutely, I suppose, than he had a sense of Pompeii on the rights of man and the declaration of the rights of man. He wasn't a bookish chap at all, but he had a kind of grammar school education which introduced him to Roman history, at least. And the idea was that, like Brutus, or it's not a particularly useful uh, parallel for him, but uh, like Brutus and Cassius, he would go to the forum saying, the tyrants are dead and the people of Rome would rally round. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm laughing because it is so ridiculous, I suppose, in retrospect. But from their point of view, it was a rational decision against a government that couldn't otherwise be shaken. It wasn't entirely stupid, as many historians have said. It was also on the side of democracy and the vote and liberty. So I don't mean to laugh at them. I laugh at them almost in incredulity at their courage as well as the absurdity. It's a very mixed story, this. It's got layer upon layer of meanings to do with liberty, to do with stupidity, to do with fantasy, to do with anger, all sorts of things, just as we encounter in the IRA or in Islamist protests today and atrocities today. So Castlereagh and Sidmouth in particular, the two ministers were going to be have their heads put on spikes on Westminster Bridge. Why didn't they? Why did they not end up on spikes on Westminster Bridge? What happened? So we come to the fateful night of the 23rd of February, bitter cold night, bitterly cold winter. These 25 men assemble in Cato Street, up a ladder at the back of a stable, and lay out their arms on the table Opposite the stable, there's a tavern in which a police spy is monitoring everything that moves, gives a whistle, and the Bow Street police force, 10 of them anyway, turn up with great efficiency. 
Lifeguards are supposed to come from the Portland Street barracks, but they're misled and they get lost on the way, which takes some doing and measure of extraordinary inefficiency on the part of the commander. So it was the policemen, the humble policemen, with their own cutlasses and pistols who had to do the job of arresting them. So in they go, charge into the stable at eight o'clock, just before the conspirators are about to make their way down to Grosvenor Square. Charge up the ladder. One poor policeman gets penetrated by Thistlewood's sword and dies on the spot. All hell breaks loose. There's a mighty fracas. Candles are put out. There's smoke everywhere. Pistol shot noises all over the place. And the cry from the conspirators or one of them, kill the buggers, throw them down the steps. And they do charge the police and force them back down the steps, down the ladder. And there's a battle at the bottom. And slowly, one by one, nine of the conspirators are arrested with some near misses, with bullets going through helmets and bullets going through sleeves. It's a wonderful cinematic scenario, actually, very Wild West. The rest of them escape, including Thistlewood, through an attic window and disappear into the night. But within a couple of days, Thistlewood and several others are arrested. They're all taken down to Bow Street in the dark, accompanied by soldiers that have turned up by now, charged, put into Coldbath Fields Prison for safekeeping, and then the government congratulates itself on its success in achieving stability. Vic, who betrayed them? Well, the key figure is a man called George Edwards. We have no portrait of him. We have no sense of him except that he was short, five foot two. A lot of these people were very short, by the way, stunted, ill, various limps and diseases. But Edwards in particular was a puny little man who made a living as a statue maker in Eton of all places. He used to make statue heads of the headmaster of Eton so that the boys could use it as target practice (laughs) on the quiet. He goes to London in great poverty, barefoot apparently. Thistlewood meets him at one point where he's living in a kind of squalid lodging behind the Strand, sleeping on straw. When Thistlewood next meets him, he is actually quite affluently dressed And Thistlewood doesn't realise this is because he's being given money at last by the Bow Street magistrate to report on Thistlewood. And so he makes a living by reporting nearly every day on thin strips of paper, detailed records of the conversations, the meeting places, the names of people who attend, which he manages to smuggle to Bow Street and from Bow Street into the home office where Sidmouth is a happy receiver of this information. Day by day by day by day, this stuff accumulates now in the home office papers, a wonderful archive. And one has to say that it took some courage, I think. Although he was a traitor to the cause, although he lied, he must have been a great actor because he persuaded the conspirators that he was absolutely on their side and that 
he was as bloodthirsty as they were and as desperate for Corsaries and Sidmouth's heads as they were. He was persuasive. He managed to conceal his reports completely to the very end. Nobody suspected him. For over two or three months, these daily reports accumulate. And, of course, he's told Bow Street exactly where they're meeting on that night of 23rd of February, how many would be there, who would be there, and <laughs> hey, presto, that's the end of it. And he also reports where Thistlewood hides so that he's picked up the next morning, still in bed, but fully dressed, ready to scarper with his sword in bed with him in case he was arrested. But he's arrested. And it's all thanks to this extraordinary spy who historically and afterwards was one of the most execrated men, of course, among radical opinion makers in the whole of England in the whole century. Like Guy Fawkes, the remarkable thing about this is, well, and like Captain Blood, as we learned on the podcast, who uh, stole the crown jewels, they end up meeting, the Privy Councillors end up kind of cross-questioning these people in person. The conspirators and their potential victims end up meeting. I know. Every one of these episodes are cinematic, I'm afraid. There's this wonderful scenario in the Home Office where the Privy Council, the whole of the Cabinet pretty well, is assembled and the men are brought in one by one. We know that there's a fair amount of intimidation and persuasion because three or four of them turn crown witness and betray their colleagues under some kind of pressure. Goodness knows what pressure it is, whether it's physical or emotional, but they have their wits scared out of them and they turn coats. But others are defiant and mock the Privy Council. They're handcuffed and taken one by one. And one or two are hugely contemptuous of the government dignitaries as they walk past them into the Privy Council chamber. And the interchanges are verbally violent. It would be wonderful to have been a fly on the wall and to see just what happened and how Sidmouth and his friends questioned these guys. But alas, we We'll never know. So we have no records of those meetings? No. Well, not that I've found. There may be. There may be. Well, one day. One day we'll have that information. Was there any legacy? Was there any lasting effect of this conspiracy? Well, I think subliminally there was, in that we're free of a revolution throughout the 19th century. Even the Chartists, the more violent Chartists of the 1840s, drew the line at revolution, having learned the lesson that the power of the state was almost insurmountable, not only because of spies, but also because of soldiers. I mean, the background of the story is to do with not only Peterloo, but also the arrest of Luddites and sundry insurrectionaries in Scotland as well as in England. So time after time, the efforts of the working class poor are thwarted by the power of the military, if not only by the power of spies, by both, really. So its effect is really implicit. It's not that they achieved anything. And it's because they failed, I think, that they've been marginalised, historically speaking. On the left wing, historians have tended to 
dismiss them. Even great historians like E.P. Thompson give them only 10 pages in an 800-page book because they failed, because they simply did not contribute to the onward march of labour or because they didn't contribute visibly to the making of the English working class. And so the kind of rich textured history has been ignored. On the right wing, to simplify tremendously, they're dismissed as demagogues, as fools, as madmen, and have been treated with general contempt. So one, the history hasn't been written imaginatively, by which I mean it hasn't been written with reference to wives, children, hunger, shoemaking, ideas, literacy, living places, London itself, the topography of it. It hasn't been attended to. So it was a failure and left no historical memory, unlike Guy Fawkes. Now, Guy Fawkes also failed, of course, but there's a political point I want to make here. Guy Fawkes was a gentleman's rebellion. It was a religious issue. And I think historians on the whole in our country, in, especially in the universities, have shown more respect for high-born conspirators than they have for low. So it's a failure, and there's no getting away from the fact that the whole plan was based on a kind of terrorist fantasy, which is contemptible, but I insist had beneath it, as one contemporary put it, goodness at heart, <laughs> in that whatever one's politics now may be, one has to acknowledge that at least they were on the side of liberty and democracy. Quick question at the end. Did any of the individuals involve, or any of the ruling class, you know, in 1832, not long after, we have quite a conservative reform measure designed to kind of shore up and defend the constitution rather than transform it. Do we think the fact that the Cato conspiracy had taken place, did that have any impact, do you think, on the Whigs or, or the Tories and the build-up to 1832? At the time, it's certainly taken as a dire warning of what might happen, what was imminent under the surface in British culture, because it was Scottish as well, that there was a potential for violence on the part of the poor that would easily match the violence of the Parisian poor, for example, if it was given its head. There's no doubt anxiety. There's no doubt that some people take lessons from this event, as well as from Peterloo. And the liberal Whigs are reformist because of it. So it does, of course, have that effect. But in the short term, the debate about the meanings of the conspiracy are very quickly obliterated. In 1820, they are executed in May. But in June, Queen Caroline lands in Dover and comes to claim her crown from the newly crowned George III, who loathes her guts, of course. And a tremendous wave of sentiment, plebeian sentiment, moves behind the Queen against the king, and more or less checks the debate about 
redistribution of land, redistribution of wealth and of political power, more or less checks it through the 1820s, although not without radical effects. I mean, there's no doubt that the attack was on a corrupt, fat, wenching, fornicating, self-indulgent king, the most loathed king in history, probably. I do think it has its effects, and you do meet people in Parliament and out who are saying we've got to get better, we've got to clean up our act. Even William Wilberforce, I say even because he's a hardline Tory, is saying that we must have some reform. And he's saying this a year or so after Cato Street. A defensive measure of reform. That's a quote that I can remember from my undergraduate days. It may even have been said at the time. Thank you very much, Vic, for coming on the podcast. What is the name of the book? The book is Conspiracy on Cato Street with the subtitle A Tale of Liberty and Revolution in Regency London, and it's published by Cambridge. Lovely. Good luck with it, Vic. Thank you very much. I think we had the history on our shoulders. Thanks, folks. You've been doing another episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.